If I asked you if you were ever tempted to try to be like God, your first answer would probably be no, of course not, because you know better, right? I know I'm not supposed to want to be like God. I'm not supposed to try to be God, right? I'm a, I'm a creature. I'm not the creator. But if we start to ask ourselves uh, some more pointed questions, we might have to change our answer. Uh, what if I asked you, um, do you try to live as though you don't need anybody's help? Do you hate to ask for help? You don't mind other people needing your help, but if you don't like ever having to ask for help, you want to be able to do everything on your own. Isn't that trying in some sense to be like God? Only God doesn't need anybody else. Only God never needs help. Or what if I asked you how you typically respond to your natural limitations? Are you the kind of person who's always trying to do more than it's humanly possible for anybody to do and you're frustrated and irritated because you can never seem to get done all the things that you want to get done and you just are frustrated by the fact that you have to go to bed at night, frustrated by the fact that you have to stop and eat a meal instead of continuing to work. Is that not also a, a frustration with the fact that you're not God, that you're not all-powerful, that you can't do all things, that you can't continue to work nonstop without rest, without nourishment? Right? Do you get frustrated by not being able to be everywhere at once? You always want to help everyone, do everything, be in every place, not miss out on anything. Well, only God is omnipresent, right? Only God can be everywhere all the time. What about this one? In Romans chapter 6, which is, again, where we'll be this morning for our sermon, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that all of us are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. Does that chafe at you a little bit? Is there part of you that says, I want to be free. I want to be autonomous. I want to be independent. I don't want to be anybody's slaves. I mean, I maybe even as a Christian, you might say, I love God. I trust Him. I want to follow Jesus. But this idea of being a slave to God, there's just something in me that that seems to rub the wrong way. If that is you, right, and you're being honest with yourself, then you have to acknowledge that that too is a desire to be like God. Only God is totally independent. Only God has no master, no Lord, no boss. All the rest of us have to serve someone or something. That's just part of what it means to be a creature. And that temptation to be like God, to be free and make your own decisions... That temptation is as old as Adam and Eve, right? No human being, though, gets to be free in that sense. None of us get to be our own masters. When Adam and Eve reached for the fruit that they thought promised them freedom, they were instead enslaved by sin and ensnared by the cunning of the serpent. We, too, will either be 
a slave of God or a slave of sin. And whichever one we serve will, of course, make all the difference. And Paul says here in Romans 6, even a life and death difference. So let me read for us the last few verses of Romans chapter 6. We're looking at verses 20 to 23 this morning. So let me read those verses before us before we work our way through them. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul uh, begins here with this uh, imagery of slavery that he's been using really throughout uh, chapter 6 of Romans. And he says, uh, he reminds us that, of course, we were slaves of sin before we were saved, right? When we were saved and we were doing our own thing, going our own way, we thought we were free. Paul says, you ought to be able to look back now and see that you were actually a slave. You couldn't say no to sin. Your life was driven by sin. It was characterized by sin. It was dominated by sin. You were enslaved to sin. And he says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, he's already said that as Christians, we are slaves to righteousness now that we're saved. Now he goes back and says, if you're a little bit uncomfortable with that idea of being a slave of righteousness, being a slave of God. How about if I put it this way? When you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. How does that feel? Oh, well, I don't know that that's, I want that to be true of me either, right? I I may not, even if I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of being a slave of righteousness, being free from righteousness sounds pretty scary too. Where righteousness had no hold on me when you were lost before you knew Christ. Righteousness is not what dominated your life. I mean, you probably had some guilt, maybe. You maybe had some sense that you should have been doing something else. But your, your life was not driven by, I want to please God. I want to obey God. I want to do what God says. I want to listen to His Word. I want to do His will. You didn't care about that stuff. You were free from that, in a sense. Your life was dominated and driven by sin. So if you think you don't want to be a slave of righteousness, Paul says your other option is to be a slave of sin and to be free from righteousness, and that's not a great choice either. On the other side of things, in verse 22, he says, now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God. So now that you are free from sin, you are a slave of God. You're no longer bound by sin. Your life is no longer dominated and ruled by sin. But you're not neutral and you're not autonomous. You are now a slave of righteousness. You're now a slave of God. This is part of what it means to be a Christian, right? When you become a Christian, part of your confession, part of your prayer, when you ask the Lord to save you is to say, Jesus, you are Lord. You are the master now. I've been living like I'm in charge long enough. I'm sick of it. It doesn't work. It's 
a terrible way to live, and I want you to change me. I want you to save me. I recognize that you are Lord, you are God, and I want my life to be yours. And so Paul says, when you, now that you've become a Christian, you've been set free from sin. Remember he said, when we died with Christ, when we trusted Christ, we shared in his death. So we died with Christ, we died to sin, our old self has been crucified with Christ, we're no longer who we once were. Praise God for that, right? Now we have become slaves of God. Our allegiance, our obedience, our life is all owed totally and wholly to Him. Now, why is that a good thing? Why should we overcome whatever sort of uneasiness might be in us about this idea of being a slave to God, being totally and wholly given over and committed to doing whatever God says. Why should we overcome that? What's the, what's the upside of this? Paul focuses in, in these few verses, focuses our attention on the fruit that comes from these two kinds of slavery. What is the outcome? What is the result? If you live as a slave of sin, if you give yourself to sin, where's that going to lead? If you give yourself to God, if you trust Christ and you confess Him as Lord and you live to please and obey Him, however imperfectly you do it, if that's the way your life is aimed, what is the fruit, what is the outcome of that? Well, first he reminds us of what the fruit is of slavery to sin. Right? So verse 21, after he says, you were slaves of sin, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So he's answering this question, right, from back in verse 15, we're under grace now, we're not under the law. And so somebody's going to say, well, since I'm under grace... And grace means my sin is covered. Why shouldn't I just go on living in sin? And one of his answers to that is, well, if you go on living in sin, then you are a slave to sin. You're not a slave to God. You're a slave to sin. And one of his answers is right here. If you live as a slave to sin, where is that going to lead? What fruit are you going to get from that? He says, think back to your life before you were a Christian. Before you met Jesus, before you repented, before you became a new creation, think about the kind of life that you lived. Aren't you ashamed of a lot of those things that you did? Aren't there things that uh, were true of you that characterized your life at that time that you'd really prefer people not even to know about? That you certainly wouldn't want to have to own up to publicly or want everybody to to know about? Don't you have some things from that period of your life that you are ashamed about? That's one of the fruits of being a slave of sin is it brings shame. You do things that are shameful and you become ashamed, right? And you you have to deal with the weight of those sinful things that you know were wrong, that everybody else knows is wrong, and you have to say, I did that. I'm embarrassed by that. I'm ashamed of that. Right? Most unless you were saved really young, right, and didn't ever have like a, a period of rebellion, most of us have things in our life that we would say, Yeah, I'm ashamed of that. I don't like to talk about it. 
I don't like to think about it. Right? And, and for some of us, some of that even continued after we were saved. It took some time for us to practically get free once Jesus had set us free. Right? There was still some, like, there was like, you know, a, a bit of a learning curve there where we tried to get loose from some things that we had been attached to before we knew Jesus. Right? That's, I mean, that's true of me. And I, I bet that's true of a lot of you as well, right? That we have things in our life from before we knew Jesus and maybe even a little bit after that we are embarrassed by, that we are ashamed of. Paul says, if that's true, why would you want to go back to living that way? Why would you want to think, well, hey, God's going to forgive me now because I'm under grace. So why don't I go back to doing the same sinful things I did before? Well, Paul says, aren't you embarrassed of that stuff anyway? Aren't you ashamed of those things anyway? Why would you want to go back to living that way? But there's an upside to this too. There's a, there's a good news side of the fact that we have things that we are ashamed of. There was a, an old uh, preacher from the early days of the church named Chrysostom. And one of the things he pointed out about this, uh, about this idea of being ashamed of our former life is um, he said it's a good thing, right? That now we are in a place where we can look back and be properly ashamed, of the things that we've done. That's a sign that we are no longer who we were. At the time, we weren't embarrassed by that stuff. We were leaning into it, right? This is what we enjoyed. This is how we wanted to live. This is how we wanted to spend our days. But now that you have met Christ, now that you have been forgiven, now that you're a new creation with a new heart, and your mind is being renewed, and your desires and your loves and your aims and your goals have changed, you look back on some of those things and think, golly, I... Would love for nobody to know that ever happened. You know, I, I wish I could go back and erase all of that. I wish I could go undo all of that. I'm ashamed I ever did that. But the fact that you're ashamed of it now is evidence that God has changed you, that God has saved you. All right, so that's one fruit of slavery to sin is shame. And the second one is death. He says uh, there at the end of verse 21, the end of those things is death. That's where those things lead. And they lead to death. We know that's true, right? From beginning to end, the Bible makes very clear that uh, as he says at the end of this passage, that the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. God warned Adam and Eve in the garden. If you eat of that tree, You're going to die, and it wasn't because the fruit was poisonous or dangerous. It was because the consequence of rebelling against God, of committing treason against God, is death. That's where that always leads. Not only in the ultimate sense, right, but also in a thousand little ways. Doesn't sin bring death to relationships? Doesn't sin bring death to joy, death to peace? And it ends in not only physical, but also spiritual and eternal death. Sin wreaks havoc from beginning to end. That's where sin leads. Is that really what you want, Paul says? You really want to go back to living that way that brought you shame and was leading to death and destruction. Why would you want to go back to that? Even if theoretically you could, why would you want to? And then he turns our attention to the, the fruit that comes from slavery to God. So if we give ourselves totally to God, if we seek to obey Him, we trust Him, we love Him, we want to walk in His ways, we want to do His will, we want to follow His word, where does that lead? He says in verse 22, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So the fruit of being a slave of God leads to sanctification. Now what does that big word mean? Sanctification is the process of becoming holy or becoming more like Christ. So you hear in the word like sanctuary, sanctified. It's that whole idea of things that are set apart, that are holy, right? So the process of sanctification is the process of God making us more and more like himself, making us more and more like Christ, making us more and more holy. That process is not automatic. That process takes place when we give ourselves over to the Lord in obedience. We say, you're the Lord, you're in charge, you tell me what to do, and I want to do it. And as you begin to do that, more and more and more you become like him. Right, so when we're saved, we're immediately forgiven our sin, of our sin. We're immediately declared righteous. We call that justification. We're immediately made right with God. But we're not immediately very godly. Right? God saves us while we are ungodly, while we're not Christ-like, while we're not lovely. But then he begins to clean us up. Right? He begins to sanctify us. He begins to make us more like Jesus. And the way that that happens is when we give ourselves over to obedience to him as slaves. Right? So maybe this has been your experience. I suspect that it has. Right? When you uh, became a Christian, you're, at, at first, depending on what kind of life you had lived before you were saved, at first when you become a Christian... And you think about being a godly person and you think about following Jesus. At first, you're thinking of the really big things, right? So I'm going to try not to curse anymore. I'm going to try not to, you know, steal. I'm going to try not to, you know, do this or that or hang out with this crowd of people that always gets me in trouble. I mean, it's the big obvious stuff that you're thinking, man, if I could just stop doing that, I'd be a saint, you know, and it, it takes a while, right? You work through those things and you, and the temptation may not ever go away, but some of that gets easier, right? Um, where you go weeks or months without even thinking about doing that, maybe. Right? But then, once you, once you deal with some of those big public sins, you know, that maybe you were guilty of before, that now you're, you know, you're, you're leaving that behind, you're set free from that, then you start to realize there's a whole other level of sin going on inside of me that I didn't even have time to think about because I was so focused on the big stuff. Now I realize it's not enough for me not to, you know, curse at that guy at work that I can't stand. I'm supposed to love him. I'm supposed to be kind to him. I'm supposed to love my neighbor like I love myself. I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. It's not enough for me not to you know, treat this person with disrespect. I've got to, I've got to be kind to them. I've got to love them and serve them. I'm, I'm supposed to be generous and I'm supposed to be forgiving. Now I've got a whole nother layer of things going on in my heart that I've got to deal with that nobody can really see, but that I know God sees that he's got to clean that stuff up now. And so I've got to begin to give those things over to him. Lord, help me love this person. God, help me forgive this person. God, help me be kind to people who aren't kind to me. Help me bless people who are cursing at me. It's a whole, and that process just continues and continues and we grow and we grow, but that doesn't happen if you're not committed 
to trying to follow Jesus. Again, however imperfectly you're following him, is that the direction where you have set your face, right? This is, this is the way I'm going. Like Jesus set himself to go to Jerusalem. We set ourselves toward following Christ, toward doing what pleases him. And when we do that, that's part of how we become more and more like Jesus. And then he says that the end of that, the end of sanctification, is eternal life. Now that is probably going to raise a question in your mind or you think, well, hold, hold on. I thought eternal life was a gift, but now you're saying eternal life is the end of a life of obedience. Which one is it? Well, it's both. We'll come back to that in just a moment. For now, I just want you to notice that he lists eternal life as a fruit in contrast to death. Right, those are the two options. Uh, There are two roads, two paths, two destinations, and you can't travel down the road of slavery to sin and end up at eternal life. It doesn't work that way. If you want to end up at eternal life, you have to travel down the road of obedience to God, of sanctification. That's how it works. Those are your two options. Now, The good news of the gospel is, if you're on the road of slavery to sin, Jesus can put you on the other road. And you don't have to get over to the other road before Jesus will love you or forgive you or be kind to you. He will rescue you and take you from that road and put you on the other one if you'll just ask him to. If you'll just say, I want off this road, I want off this life, I I need my sins forgiven, I want a new direction, I want a new master, I want a new everything. I've messed this up completely. Would you save me? That's why Jesus came, that's why Jesus died, that's why Jesus rose, that's what Jesus is doing right now from the right hand of the Father where he's seated even now is he is listening to the pleas of every sinner who's repenting and calling out to him and he's rescuing them and saving them and transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of himself, his own kingdom, the kingdom of God's beloved son. Right. So uh, you can change roads... Right? But you've you got to get on the other road if you're going to end up where that road ends, at eternal life. Right? So um, if you, hopefully if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you can look back and see evidence in, in your life of what I'm talking about. Right? That you know uh, you're not the same person that you were when you first called out to Jesus to save you. Right? If you've been saved for years and years and years, right? hopefully you can see progress. If you can't, Ask a friend who knows you really well. Sometimes we're blind to our own progress. It's kind of like, I feel like someone was talking about this recently, that um, you, don't, you don't really notice your own kids growing very much, but people who don't see your kids all the time, when they see them six months or a year apart, and they say, oh my goodness, you've grown so much. And you as a parent haven't noticed because you see them every day. You may not notice as much of what God is doing in your life because you are living your life every day. But people who have known you over a stretch of years right, can tell you, I, I remember what a mess you were. <laughs> and you're, you're still kind of a mess, but you're not as much of a mess as you used to be. I can see God's hand in, you, in your life. I can see how he's changing you. I can see how he's working in you. So if you can't see it, ask somebody else who you think might be able to see it. Because a lot of times others can see it better than we can see it ourselves. But it's, it's there. It's a reality, right? And it's... it's it's, sometimes it's an up and down thing, right? Sometimes we have seasons where we feel like we're not moving forward, we're moving backward, things are getting harder, or not, not 
not growing as much or whatever, but what counts is the overall trajectory, right? What direction are you heading? Where, where is that, uh, where is your life leading? Right? So um, when, we, um, when we are training up our kids, right, one of the things that we are trying to impress upon them is that their actions have consequences. Right? If you leave that stuff there long enough, it's going to disappear, right? Uh, if you don't put that away, you're not going to be able to walk in your room without tripping, right? If you do this, if you say this kind of thing to this person, you're going to damage and possibly destroy that relationship. That your actions have consequences. But adults have to be reminded of that as well. That's what Paul's reminding of us here with this talk about the fruit that comes from slavery to sin versus slavery to righteousness. Is our choices have consequences. Our actions have consequences, The trouble is that we often try to separate things that the Bible holds together. Uh, We try to um, to sort of carve out our own way of of things working uh, where our actions don't have consequences, or at least not the consequences the Bible says that they have, uh, so that we can go our own way and do our own thing and still hope that things are going to end up okay at the end. That's just not the way it works. So in verse 23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. We've all heard that probably hundreds, if not thousands of times. We know that what we earn by sin is our own death. That's the wages that we earn for our disobedience against God. But he says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now let me come back to this question of how can eternal life be the end of sanctification and be a free gift from God? Because both of those things are true. Eternal life is a gift that God gives to everyone who trusts in Jesus. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to clean yourself up for it first. It's a free gift that God gives to everyone in Christ. And yet, Paul also says, just a verse earlier, that eternal life is the end of the path of sanctification that you get on when you become a slave of God. So how do those two things work together? How can it be both the end of the process of sanctification and the gift of eternal life? This is one of the things that the Bible holds together all over the place that we often try to separate. So people want to say, they want to think, they want to believe that I can say Jesus is Lord and ask him to forgive me of my sin And I can go on living however I want, and I'm still going to go to heaven when I die. The Bible says that is not the way that it works. It's not the way that it works. Because when you believe, right, you were saved by grace through faith apart from works. But faith is not just saying, yeah, Jesus, I know you're there. I need you to forgive me, but, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. Faith does not work that way. Faith is a receiving of Jesus. It is an embracing of Jesus. And faith uh, works, right? James makes this very clear. The faith that doesn't work, a faith that doesn't do anything, a faith that just checks off the boxes of, yes, I know this is true. Yes, I know this is true. Demons have that kind of faith. Demons believe that there's one God, but they're not going to heaven. right? They know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. They saw it. But it's not doing them any good. 
Why not? Because they are not trusting Jesus. They're not, they're not embracing and receiving Jesus, turning from their sin and confessing Him as Lord and saying, I'm yours, I want to follow you. Right? Real faith, saving faith, Paul says it works through love. James says it evidences itself in good works. If you really trust Jesus, then you're going to want to do what He says. If you really receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you become His slave. He becomes your master. You want to do the things that He says you ought to do. And so you are going to be on that path of sanctification, which ends in eternal life, not because you've earned it, but because you got on the right path at the beginning, right, by trusting in Jesus. So... All over the Bible, right, these two things are held together. Think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says, yeah, I believe you're Lord, Jesus. Not everybody who says that's going to go to heaven. Who's going to go to heaven? Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father is the one who's going to enter the kingdom. Is that work salvation? No. It's whoever really believes Jesus is Lord is going to end up doing God's will. Right? That's why the very next thing he says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives that story about the wise and foolish builders. The wise builder built his house on the rock. The foolish builder built his house on the sand. What's the difference between the wise and the foolish builder? Well, they both heard Jesus' teaching. The foolish builder didn't do what Jesus said, and the wise builder did what Jesus said, and the wise builder is the one whose house was not destroyed by the storm when it came. Or take the parable that Jesus told about the sheep and the goats. When Jesus, Jesus says when he comes to judge the nations and the glory of his Father, he's going to separate people into the sheep and the goats. And um, what does he say is the difference between the sheep and the goats? Well, the goats did not care for Jesus because they didn't care for the least of his brothers. The sheep did care for Jesus because they did care for the least of his brothers. They clothed them when they were naked. They visited them when they were in prison. They gave them food when they were hungry. They invited them into their house. They showed love for Jesus by showing love to those who belonged to Jesus. And they didn't earn their salvation by doing those things. They showed that they trusted Jesus by doing those things. This is what's Again, all over the Bible, that your faith will show itself in works. That's all Paul is saying. Eternal life is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Justification is a gift. None of this has to be earned by works. But all of chapter 6 is there to tell us. But once you have experienced this saving grace, it will change you. Or you haven't experienced it. It will change you, or you haven't believed. It will change you, because that's how the gospel works. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And not just the power to forgive you, but also the power to change you, to make you more like Jesus. That's how the gospel works. That's why Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, don't you know that if you've been baptized into the name of Jesus, which is your public declaration that you now belong to Christ. Don't you know that if you've been baptized into the name of Jesus, you've been baptized into his death? 
And if you've been baptized into his death, then have you not also been raised to walk in newness of life? If you're not walking in new life, maybe it's because you haven't died. And if you haven't died, it's because you haven't really joined Christ. You haven't really trusted Christ. Paul's point in saying all this is to encourage believers not to go back to the way that you lived before you met Jesus. Don't think that the gospel is permission to live however you want to live. Don't think that grace is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, now I get to go to heaven and I can do whatever I want. No, grace is the power to live the way you wanted to live, but couldn't apart from Jesus. You couldn't please God. You couldn't obey God. You couldn't be like Christ on your own. But now that you have called out to him for mercy and grace and salvation, the Holy Spirit himself is living inside of you. God's grace is powerfully at work within you to transform you, to empower you, to enable you to live a transformed life. An imperfect life, we'll all be the first to say. But a changed life, a transformed life. Because the gospel is powerful. Let's pray and thank God for that powerful work within us. God, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for the power of the gospel at work within us. We pray, God, that you would forgive us for the times when we are tempted to and give in to the the temptation to uh, go back to sinful ways of living, sinful patterns, sinful habits. God, help us to remember how terrible that way of living was and is. Help us remember the consequences, the fruits of living in rebellion against your word and your will and your ways. Help us to remember what Jesus has done for us to save us and help us remember how much better it is, how much more more joy there is, how much more peace there is when we trust you and walk in your ways, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, it's always better. So please help us, God. Please fill us with your spirit. Please uh, help us draw upon your grace. Help us come before you daily in prayer, asking for your help to live in the ways that please and honor you and that are best for us. God, help us to experience and witness that power at work in our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters around us. And God, for anybody who has not tasted that forgiveness, who has not received Jesus, who has not been transformed, we pray, God, that that you would stir up in them a, a longing for it. Make them sick of their sin. Make them long for Jesus. Make them long for a new life and a new start. And God, for those who are struggling and and doubting, who are in a difficult period and are not really sure where they fall, God, help them see the ways that you are at work in their life. Help them call out to you for help, for mercy, for grace. God, help them see where they are in need and believe the promise, God, that you are there, God, to help those who are in need who cry out to you. You You don't spurn the brokenhearted. You don't turn away anybody who comes to you in need and broken and asking for help. So help us, God, to turn to you. Help us, God, to lean upon you. Help us, God, to trust you. For you are all-powerful 
and you are gracious and merciful beyond what we have even begun to understand. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.